Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is 2 Kings chapter 16, week number 23. Well, as we begin our study of 2 Kings chapter 16 today, this, by the way, is going to take a couple of weeks to complete. I'll reiterate that in order to properly understand the times and to better understand certain events that are being depicted, we have to incorporate the book of Second Chronicles and some of the books of the prophets, especially that of Isaiah. It's only when we interweave the information that's contained in these various Bible books that we begin to discover the true context, not only for the historical actions and reactions of these various kings of Israel and Judah to their circumstances, but we also begin to illuminate the true context and meaning of the several messianic prophecies that are present in the prophets. Now I also want to again point out, and I'm going to continue to do this because of its importance, that the so-called end times prophecies that have gripped and fascinated the modern church, at least it has in the West, were mostly written during the times of the kings. It was under the backdrop of Israel's and Judah's deepening apostasy and their falling away from God's word in favor of man-made doctrines and strange mixtures of Jehovah worship with pagan rites and rituals that we find God's prophets not only warning the Israelites about their coming fate but also offering hope for a better future after they are exiled for their abandonment of the God of Israel. And this better future is going to happen because of a mysterious deliverer that will come from the house of David. He is called in Hebrew HaMashiach. It literally means the Anointed One. But our modern English Bible translations use the term the Messiah or the Savior. Now, as we concluded our lesson in 2 Kings chapter 15 last time, we witnessed a litany of wicked kings come and go in the northern kingdom of Israel, most of them murdered by their successors. In a mere, rather, in the mere 13 or 14 years, from the death of King Jeroboam II, four different kings sat briefly on the throne of Israel. But Judah's monarchy, even though it was still ruled by the house of David, was also descending into spiritual ruin, even if it was at a different pace than their brethren to the north. Yotam, Jotham, king of Judah, had just died. And his son, Ahaz, had taken over the throne. And Ahaz would become perhaps the most apostate king Judah had ever known. And as a result of his rampant idolatry and outright defiance of God, he would find himself not only 
constantly fighting off enemies to keep Judah sovereign, but also trying to stave off personal attacks. Now, in fact, we find that the latest king of Israel, Pekah, had joined forces with um, Aram, with Syria, and their king, Retzin. And one of their goals was to attack Judah. They wanted to remove Ahaz from the throne and replace him with a foreigner. Part of the reason for that strategy was to secure Israel's, meaning the northern kingdom's, southern border. So that Israel and Aram would be free to try and liberate themselves from Assyria's domination. However, as we keep moving forward with our study, I want you to keep one critical thought at the forefront of your mind. The hope of the kings of Israel and Syria also involved putting to an end, once and for all, the dynasty of David that had ruled over Judah for 250 years. And while it most certainly was Satan's number one goal to somehow thwart God's effort to provide a Messiah for all mankind through the house of David, Pekah of Israel and Retzin of Aram had no such thought. Because this divine concept of a universal redeemer coming from the house of David had not yet been sufficiently revealed by Israel's prophets. These two kings' purpose in eliminating David's dynasty was purely political and pragmatic. However, Satan, of course, recognized that if the house of David could be destroyed by using this military alliance of a Hebrew king along with a Syrian king, then the anointed one, the Messiah, would never come. Because the Messiah had to be a member of David's royal line, according to God's promised plan. If that happened, then redemption would not happen. And that would mean that the evil one had defeated God. And he would retain his place as prince over the earth. And when we grasp the enormity of what was actually at stake here, something that was completely unknown to the main players that were involved, then we can also grasp the background for Isaiah's well-known messianic prophecy in Isaiah 7. Because the context for Isaiah 7 is that these two kings, one a Hebrew, the other a foreigner, have together plotted to end the Davidic dynasty currently represented by King Ahaz. And what we are about to read 
in Isaiah 7 is God's response to their, and of course to Satan's, wicked intentions. So let's revisit that for a moment. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 445. We're going to read the first 14 verses. During the days of Ahaz, the son of Yotam, the son of Uziel, king of Judah, Retzin, the king of Aram, and Pekach, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, advanced on Jerusalem to attack it, but were unable to conquer it. It was told to the house of David that Aram and Ephraim had become allies. Ahaz's heart began to tremble as did the hearts of his people like forest trees shaken by the wind. And then Adonai said to Yeshiao, Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Yashuv, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool and on the road to the launderer's field and say this to him. Take care to stay calm and unafraid. Don't be demoralized by these two smoldering stumps of firewood, by the blazing anger of Retzin or Aram uh, or the son of Ramalia, or because Aram and Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have been plotting against you, thinking, we will invade Judah, we'll tear it apart, divide it amongst ourselves, and appoint the son of Tavel as king there. Because this is what Adonai Elohim says. It won't occur. It won't happen. For the head of Aram is Damasek, Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Retzin. In 65 years, Ephraim will be broken and he will cease to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Shomron, Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Without firm faith you will not be firmly established. And Adonai spoke again to Ahaz, and he said, Ask Adonai your God to give you a sign. Ask it anywhere, from the depths of Sheol to the heights above. But Ahaz answered, I won't ask. I won't test Adonai. Then the prophet said, Listen here, house of David. Is trying people's patience such a small thing for you that you try the patience of my God as well? Therefore Adonai himself will give you a sign. The young woman will become pregnant, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel. God is with us. So, here we see that it is not for King Ahaz's sake that Jehovah is going to save him from being dethroned. Rather, it's because the house of David must continue in order that God's promised plan for a Redeemer continues. And in Isaiah's prophetic oracle to Ahaz, when the king is told that he need not worry, well, at least for the time being, that Israel and Assyria would succeed against him, One of the most important pieces to the messianic puzzle in the entire Bible 
is given to us in verse 14. As God says, Therefore Adonai himself will give you people a sign. The young woman will become pregnant, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel. Now stay with me on this. What's the reason for God wanting to give Ahaz a sign? It was as divine assurance to King Ahaz, in reality to all who were paying attention, to guarantee God's promise in Isaiah 7-7 that Israel together with Syria would not defeat Judah. They would not remove Ahaz and then end David's dynasty. After all, God had long ago promised that the house of David would endure forever. Recall what God told King David through the prophet Nathan. Natan in 2 Samuel 7, 12-16 When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you, one of your own flesh and blood, and I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him. He will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I'll punish him with a rod and blows, just as everyone gets punished. Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Thus your house and your kingdom will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. God made it clear that he foreknew that some of David's descendants would become lousy kings. And those future kings of the Davidic dynasty would do wrong things. And they would not and, and they would be punished appropriately for their sinning against Jehovah. Nevertheless, God says he will not revoke his promise. That David's kingdom will be a forever kingdom. Rather, he says, the Lord will show these rebellious kings grace. And as we continue our study today you're going to find out just how lousy a Davidic king could be as we follow King Ahaz's career. So even though there's not the slightest hint that the military coalition of Israel and Syria or that King Ahaz of Judah even remembered God's promise to David, God remembered. But there's something else. The future of the Davidic dynasty is going to rest in the subject of this sign from God. A virgin is going to become pregnant, bear a son, and his symbolic name will be Emmanuel. God is with us. Now, what exactly was King Ahaz, or the prophet Isaiah for that matter, supposed to think about the meaning of those words. I mean, it's beyond any kind of reasonable expectation that either of them had a clue what that meant. Now remember, the context of all that we're reading about 
is that King Ahaz is scared out of his wits because he's about to be invaded by overwhelming forces. Obviously, this virgin girl was from the house of David. That much of it was plain. And then her son is going to be called Emmanuel. God is with us. Really, it it was quite usual for people of the Bible era to be given these lofty symbolic names invoking the divine. We've run into many of them as we've studied. So I can't imagine that Ahaz or Isaiah were troubled or confused by that. But an unnamed virgin girl is going to have a baby? A male child? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. What has her male child got to do with the invasion that Ahaz is currently facing? In reality, since King Ahaz refused to ask God for a sign of God's assurance of Judah's and King Ahaz's survival, and of course, therefore, the survival of the the house of David, God instead used that occasion to give a sign that only future generations of Judah would understand. For King Ahaz, and no doubt most of David's descendants, the continuation of the house of David had no spiritual meaning at all. It was purely practical, It was about politics and power and family wealth and status for them. So, with that background, now let's read 2 Kings 16 and we're going to keep on weaving the pieces together. 2 Kings chapter 16. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 420. Page 420. It was in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, that Ahaz, the son of Yotam, king of Judah, began his reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to rule, and he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. But he did not do what was right from the perspective of Adonai his God, as David his ancestor had done. Rather, he lived in the manner of the kings of Israel. He even made his son pass through fire, in keeping with the abominable practices of the pagans, whom Adonai had thrown out ahead of the people of Israel. He also sacrificed and offered on the high places, on the hills, under any green tree. And then Retzin, king of Aram, and Pechach, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to fight against Jerusalem. They put Ahaz under siege, but they could not overcome him. It was at that time that Retzin, king of Aram, recovered Elot for Aram and drove the Judeans from Elot, whereupon people from Edom came to Elot to live as they do to this day. Then Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglat Pileser, the king of Asher, with this message, I am your servant and your son. Come up, save me from this king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. Akaz took the silver and gold that was in the house of Adonai and in the treasuries of the royal palace and he sent it as a present to the king of Asher. The king of Asher heeded him. The king of Asher attacked Damascus and he captured it. Then he carried its people captive to Kir and he killed Retzin. 
And when Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglat-Pileser, king of Asher, and saw the altar that was in Damascus, he sent a drawing and a model of the altar to Uriah the Kohen, the priest, with details of its construction and decoration. And then Uriah the Kohen built an altar, exactly according to the design King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. And Uriah the Kohen had it ready by the time King Ahaz returned from Damascus. And when the king arrived from Damascus, he saw the altar. And the king approached the altar, and he offered on it. And he offered his burnt offering, and his grain offering, and he poured out his drink offering, and he splashed the blood of his peace offering on the altar. The bronze altar, which was before Adonai, he brought from in front of the house, from between his own altar and the house of Adonai, he put it on the north side of his own altar. And then King Akaz instructed Uriah the Kohen as follows, Henceforth it's on the large altar that you are to offer the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering, and his grain offering, together with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings, and you are to splash all the blood of the burnt offering against it and all of the blood of the sacrifice. As for the bronze altar, I'll take care of that. Uriah the Kohen acted in accordance with everything King Ahaz ordered. King Ahaz removed the panels of the trolleys. He took the basins off of them. He took the sea off the bronze oxen supporting it and set it on the stone pavement. And because of the king of Asher, meaning Assyria, he removed from the house of Adonai the colonnade used on Shabbat that had been built for it in the king's entranceway outside it. Other activities of Ahaz and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Ahaz slept with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, took his place as king. Verse 1 begins with what we now know is the rather typical way of dating the kings of Israel and Judah, and it's by synchronizing the period of their reigns. So we're told that in the same year, when Pekah had been ruling over the northern kingdom for the 17th year, Ahaz became the king of Judah, and then he would sit on the throne of Judah for the next 16 years. However, we're also told that he was 20 years old, when he assumed leadership. That's impossible. Because later, we're going to find out that at the end of Akaz's reign, his son, Hezekiah, took over, and Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. That means Akaz was 11 years old when he fathered Hezekiah. The Septuagint and the Syriac Bible, among others, say that Akaz was 25 years old when he began his reign, not 20. And that at least works from a common sense, if not a biological standpoint. Now verse 3, though, is terribly disturbing. So much so, that many Jewish and Christian scholars have tried to downplay some of what it says. First we're told that rather than behave as his great Judean ancestor David did, Ahaz adopted the ways of Israel's kings. And remember that the ways of Israel's kings is primarily referring to the golden calf worship that King Jeroboam 
had set up more than two centuries earlier. <coughs> but Ahaz did them all one better. He adopted the pagan practice of child sacrifice. Verse 3 says that he even passed his own son through the fire in imitation of the pagan nations that had long ago been run out of the promised land for practicing such evil. Now I've heard many a well-meaning rabbi, pastor, Bible teacher, and several scholars insist that being passed through the fire did not mean child sacrifice. That as bad as Ahaz was, a Hebrew would never do such a thing. Their belief is that in fact it was referring to a painful but not fatal practice in which a boy child would essentially be branded with burn marks passed through fire. And the ceremony is said to have typically happened using a hollow bronze statue of a god usually Molech in which a fire would be burning that would heat up the metal statue. Then this naked child would be laid upon the statue for a few moments and the resultant burn scars were either a sign of dedication of the child to this god or perhaps it was a sign that this boy child had now passed from being a child to being a man. Now I have no doubt in my own research that this sort of thing happened. But I also have no doubt that that's not what being is not what's being referred to here. This indeed is speaking of human sacrifice, and here's the proof of it. Turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 28. Second Chronicles chapter 28. just going to read the first three verses. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began his reign. He ruled 16 years in Jerusalem, but he did not do what was right from the perspective of Adonai as David his ancestor had done. Rather, he lived in the manner of the kings of Israel and he made cast metal images for the Baalim, the Baals. However, or rather moreover, he made offerings in the Ben-Hinnom Valley even burned up his own children as sacrifices in keeping with the horrible practices of the pagans whom Adonai had thrown out ahead of the people of Israel. In this parallel account to 2 Kings 16, the Hebrew word that is being translated into English as burned up is ba'ar. Ba'ar. And it means to burn up or, or, or to kindle a fire. Further, the occasion for this was as a katar. Katar. This means to sacrifice or to consume by fire or to create the smoke of a sacrifice from what it burns up. If you have a complete, if you have a King James version Bible that you're using, you're going to see here that it says that Ahaz burned incense and he burned his children making it sound more benign in that while the children got burn marks what actually got burned up 
was incense. The word incense never appears in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was inserted there by the King James editors to soften an otherwise unthinkable act by a Hebrew king upon his own offspring. Now we're going to find that some mistranslation, rather the same mistranslation in some Hebrew publications because Judaism seeks to protect the integrity of David and his dynasty at all costs and thus they cannot accept that a descendant of David would commit child sacrifice but he did and there it is 2 Kings 16 verse 4 adds that the king made offerings and sacrifices on altars all over Jerusalem and typically under a green tree Now in Bible speak, a green tree is usually one or another variety of fir tree because they're evergreens. And that's what a green tree means. It's always green. And a fir tree was a standard pagan symbol for Ashtoreth. And thus they were usually called Asherah. They were fertility symbols. And although we have read throughout the book of Kings that the people sacrificed and offered on Bamot and under fir trees. Here we have Judah's king doing it. And this is a dire sign of Judah's descent into spiritual darkness. Further, as we're soon going to read, King Ahaz would shun God's offer to deliver Judah from Aram in Israel, or even to choose a sign to indicate that the kings of Israel and Syria wouldn't overcome him. But instead, King Ahaz chose to turn to the king of Assyria for rescue. And he would give up control of Judah to Tiglath-Pileser as part of the bargain. Now before we get there though, this is a good time to pause and make application about what we've been reading. And it is that what is going on in modern terms is that King Ahaz is doing what too many leaders did then and too many do now. They were looking for bottom line results. They look around at other leaders who seem to be very successful and powerful or publicly acclaimed and they try to imitate them or to join them. Faith and principle take a back seat to achieving their goals. Ahaz borrowed the ways of his pagan neighbors who impressed him with their power and their grandeur and their success and in doing so he gained their approval and he gained their favor. Politicians do that all the time. Marketers of products and services for companies see what works for their competitors and they try to do the same thing. The National Football League is regularly called the Copycat League. That could apply to most sports nowadays. But sadly, we often see this same dynamic employed among leaders of God's people as it was with King Ahaz. What works replaces what's right. 
I can tell you that it's a, it's a very tempting thing for any leader to try to rationalize some questionable way of achieving a goal that your heart greatly desires because that way has worked very well for others. Now, several years ago, Rick Warren grew a huge church in Southern California. And he gained immense notoriety, and then he wrote a book about how he did it. And this book was so popular that he wrote another book and then designed an expensive companion kit complete with posters and banners and flyers that other churches can purchase and use in hopes of accomplishing the same thing he did. It was called Purpose Driven Life. And the marketing plan that churches could purchase was called 40 Days of Purpose. You probably remember that. It became all the rage. It seemed like at some point or another, every church across America interrupted everything they were doing for six or seven weeks, studied his book together, tried to apply his principles, and the goal was always to grow the church. Did it work? Sometimes no, sometimes yes. At least temporarily. But the question never seemed to be asked among church leadership, is this how God's church is supposed to operate? Is a slick marketing plan the biblical way to bring the unwashed to Christ? Or the fallen away back to church? Certainly even if some of the supposed Christian principles in the book weren't necessarily right doctrine, the marketing plan that came with it was excellent. And it was often very effective. Now, I can remember when singing Christmas trees first came about. (laughs) And this led to tremendous growth in the first handful of churches who used it. It did. It was very popular in the local communities. Lines were long to purchase tickets. Soon, every church with a big enough auditorium was trying to buy one. Man, these things were expensive. Again, with the hopes of packing in seekers to grow the congregation. Now, since Christmas trees are kind of a pet peeve of mine, I can't resist pointing out that when I say Santa and Christmas trees have become the focus of Christmas, even in Christian homes, I'm always told, but not in mine. Yet here were church leaders across the land that intentionally made Christmas trees the center point of Christmas. And not only that, but of their church's main Christmas celebration. Now, did it work? Did more people come to church? In some cases, no. In other cases, yes. It did. Now, as the body of Messiah, we're not to follow the secular crowds. We're not to try, we're not out to try to outworld the world just by adding a nickel's worth of Christ to the mix. We're not supposed to adapt inherently worldly ways that achieve worldly goals or adopt worldly morals that grow ever more popular day by day or worldly methods that do seem to bring bottom line results to the proper worship of God and observance of His commandments nor are we to attempt to grow the number of his followers by watering down the gospel message or by shifting the focus 
to something more fun or popular. Or becoming more tolerant. Or accepting of what the world calls diversity, but God's world calls it wicked. See, keeping up with technological advances and comforts of one's culture is perfectly fine. God doesn't ask His worshipers to live in the past or to shun innovation. What Solomon was able to build for a temple couldn't have been done by Israel in Moses' day because they didn't have the technology. They didn't have the know-how yet. But the goals and principles and the focus and the purpose for doing what we establish as our Christian fellowship and our personal goals are timeless. And they need to stay tightly in line with God's laws and His commandments or we're going to arrive at what we've been reading about in 2 Kings no matter how much we might deny that it couldn't happen to us. Well, in verse 5, we read that Aram and Israel attacked Jerusalem. But they didn't defeat King Ahaz of Judah, thus fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy of God's promise to that effect. But there's much more to this ultra-brief report in verse 5 about the invasion of Judah in 2 Kings 16, and it's very important. And we get a lot more information about this in 2 Chronicles and in Isaiah. So, turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 28. 2 Chronicles 28. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1210. 2 Chronicles 28. We're going to read verses 5 through 15. Because of this, Adonai, his God, handed him over to the king of Aram. They attacked him and carried off from his people a great number of captives, bringing them to Damascus. In addition, he handed over to the king of Israel. He was handed over to the king of Israel, who inflicted on him a great massacre. For Pekah, the son of Ramalia, killed in Judah 120,000 men in one day. All of them brave men, because they had abandoned Adonai, the god of their ancestors. And Zichri, a champion from Ephraim, killed Masiah, the king's son. Azraham, the administrator of the household. Elkanah who was second only to the king. The people of Israel took captive from their kinsmen 200,000 wives and sons and daughters. They also captured from them much spoil which they brought to Samaria. But a prophet of Adonai named Oded was there. He went out to meet the army coming to Shomron and said to them, Look, It's because Adonai, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah that he has handed them over to you and you have slaughtered them in a fury that has reached up to heaven. Now you intend to force the people from Judah and Jerusalem into subjugation as your slaves. 
But haven't you guilty deeds of your own that you committed against Adonai, your God? Therefore, listen to me now. Send the captives back, the people you have taken captive from your kinsmen, because the fierce anger of Adonai is on you. At this, some of the leaders of the people of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Yochanan, Berakiah, the son of uh, Meshelamot, Yechizkiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, protested against those who were returning from the war, saying to them, Don't bring the captives here, because you intend to do something that will bring great guilt on us from Adonai. It will only add to our sins and guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is fierce anger against Israel. So the armed soldiers left the captives and the spoil there with the leaders and the whole community. While the men named above took charge of the captives and from the spoil clothed those among them who were inadequately clothed, giving them garments and shoes, providing them food and drink, and anointing them with oil. After placing all the weak among them on donkeys, they brought them to Jericho the city of date palms to their kinsmen. Only then did they return to Samaria. So it seemed, what seemed to be a kind of not so bad result of the invasion that we read about in 2 Kings 16.5, what turned out to have been a terrible disaster for the citizens of Judah, even if King Ahaz managed to stay in power. Now notice that 120,000 of Ahaz's troops were killed and 200,000 civilians of Judah were captured and taken as slaves. The result was terrible. But what we have to go back to is the first part of today's lesson so that we remember that God's goal of retaining the dynasty of David was number one. This was for the purpose of eventually bringing redemption to the world through this mysterious son of a virgin. And that overrode everything. That King Ahaz was that representative of David's dynasty and notwithstanding that he was as wicked a king as Judah would ever see prior to their exile, God promised King Ahaz that he would survive the onslaught of Aram and Israel, and he did. But while we're here, let's follow this episode a bit farther in 2 Chronicles. Notice that in 2 Chronicles 28.5, many captives of, Judah, captives of Judah were taken to Damascus, Syria. You see, that's in addition to the 200,000 that were taken to Israel. So the total was enormous. And there is no evidence that those who were taken to Aram were ever returned. But this is not to say that Ahaz himself escaped unharmed. His regime, his administration were decimated. His son, Maseah, was killed. And what Ahaz had left after that invasion was a greatly diminished kingdom. Now verse 9 then begins a narrative that explains that a prophet named Oded, who was a member of the northern kingdom, met this victorious 
group of homecoming troops bringing their 200,000 Judean captives and large quantities of spoils of war and told them that while on the one hand they had carried out the Lord's intention of punishing Judah for their sins against him, on the other hand they had gone much too far. This is a theme we've seen before. It's a theme we're going to see again. God will use the wicked to punish His people. And if they don't overdo it, then they're actually praised. Or at least shown some measure of grace. But if they become too brutal, which they usually do, then God turns against them and destroys them. And Oded is warning the military and the tribal leaders of the north that it was never God's intent that Judah be ravaged and that Israel would capture their own brethren as slaves and then bring them home with them. This was against the law of Moses. In what seems like an amazing departure from all that we've been reading about concerning the dark spiritual condition of the northern kingdom of Israel, we find that four obviously influential tribal leaders heeded Oded's oracle. They stood up. They spoke against what was happening. And Israel's military leaders turned the entire ragtag mob of captives over to them on the spot along with the bulk of the spoils that the soldiers had taken in Judah. One of the things that this demonstrates is that while we can always generalize and call an entire nation wicked or an entire people group evil, in fact, there will always be remnants of folks who are different than the rest. In this case, it's obvious that there were many in the northern kingdom of Israel who still believed in Jehovah, still had some righteousness left in them, and they still feared the God of Israel enough to listen to and obey God's prophets. They acted appropriately. They treated the Judean captives well. They fed them, they clothed those without proper clothing, they put the weakest onto donkeys, and they brought them all back to Judah, leaving them in Jericho. But in the end, even though many individuals of both low and high social status in Israel were basically good and righteous, and they feared God, and they likely didn't buy into the apostasy of their king and their neighbors. They would be exiled to Assyria right along with the rest of the northern kingdom. And this is because God views and judges all people on two levels. The individual level and the group level. We are eligible for salvation on an individual level we will be eternally judged on an individual level. But we will also suffer blessings or curses collectively. Be judged on some matters nationally, depending on the group we attach ourselves to and the group we identify with. The group level can be as small as a family, can be as large as a nation. 
The group can be a church, a synagogue, a community, or a state. Should the Lord lose His patience and finally judge America justifiably, it won't matter whether you're saved or not. We'll all suffer the consequences together. The first four chapters of Revelation deal with the seven churches of Asia, symbolic of the seven general conditions of various congregations even today. And we find that the Lord warns that a believer who chooses to be part of any particular fellowship of believers is going to suffer many of the things that the congregation as a whole will suffer, regardless if you are the exception to the rule. So we are admonished to choose our associations and our groups wisely when we have a choice. One final point and we'll end it. Isaiah 7, verse 3 says this, Then Adonai said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet a cause, you and your son, Shear Yeshuv, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. The pertinent point is that the name of Isaiah's son, Shear Yeshuv, is a symbolic name. And it means a remnant shall return. And of course, that's what happened, as predicted. When Israel released its 200,000 captive Judeans. But apparently, Aram kept their Judean slaves. So we must also keep in mind that the term remnant doesn't always necessarily mean a real small number. It just means all that remains. We'll continue this chapter next time.